turn with me in your Bible to the book of John, chapter 2. John, chapter 2. It's the Gospel of John, not the Epistle. Our text today is John chapter 2, verses 1 through 11. I'll read this as you read along in your copy of God's Word. On the third day, there was a wedding at Cana in Galilee, and the mother of Jesus was there. Jesus also was invited to the wedding with his disciples. When the wine, wine ran out, the mother of Jesus said to him, they have no wine. And Jesus said to her, woman, what does that have to do with me? My hour has not yet come. And his mother said to the servants, do whatever he tells you. Now, there were six stone water jars there for the Jewish rites of purification, each holding 20 or 30 gallons. Jesus said to the servants, fill the jars with water. And they filled them to the brim. And he said to them, now draw out, draw some out and take it to the master of the feast. And so they took it. When the master of the feast tasted, the water now become wine And did not know where it came from, though the servants who had drawn the water knew, the master of the feast called the bridegroom and said to him, everyone serves the good wine first, and when the people have drunk freely, then the poor wine. But you have kept the good wine until now. This, the first of his signs, Jesus did at Cana in Galilee and manifested his glory And his disciples believed him. I pray, Father, that you would bless the reading of your word, Lord, and speak to your church today. Amen. Well, uh, thank you, Pastor Randy, for giving me this opportunity. Um, I trust that your week at the conference was beneficial. Last time I got the honor of standing before you, we were invited, if you remember, we were invited to peek in on kind of a domestic dispute, if you remember, between Mary and Martha. And today, uh, I don't think I intentionally did this, we're going to peek into another very private and intimate domestic situation, but this time it's a wedding. So it's a little more comfortable. Who doesn't? love a good wedding. Um, I think I have four invitations, wedding invitations on my refrigerator right now, so it's the time of year when uh, we as a species have decided that that's appropriate to plan our weddings for summer, and so they send out invitations, and uh, yeah, some of them, you know, we may try to attend. Most of them, I think, uh, we give gifts. I think that's the intention there with, with sending an invitation sometimes, but um, We are invited by the evangelist John to witness this wedding that he recorded for us in Cana. So uh, culturally, 
there's some things that I think we need to be aware of. And then literarily, there's some things we need to be aware of that John might be doing here with his uh, account of Jesus' works on earth. So let's jump in culturally first. Uh, I remember uh, we, we were in Turkey, and one of the roles I had um, working with the International Mission Board was uh, I was a volunteer coordinator. Now, what this role entailed was I was kind of the liaison or the, the go-between between, between uh, churches in America that wanted to specifically focus and work with missionaries and, and works with the Kurdish people of Turkey, okay? So Kurdish people of Turkey. And um, so, so I did that, and uh, I, would, I brought a group over from, at the time, our, our church, our home church in Mississippi, uh, Pine Lake Church. Uh, we had a partnership with them. We brought a group over, okay? So the flight, if you've ever made that flight, I know some of you have, is very long, um, takes forever. My family's done it several times. Uh, it is just a day that you don't want to forget, or you want to forget forever, but you can't. Uh, it's the longest day ever. So you make this flight, several flights over. And I remember one time when I invited this church group to come over, I picked them up at the airport. Um, they were just, you know, haggard, and after 24-hour-plus flights, uh, trying to get luggage together in a new environment with all of the the, the time change, it, you know, it should have been night for them on their, on their biological clock, but it was the middle of the day, bright, and, and so, uh, you know, and so we get in the van, I had this 11-passenger uh, uh, van pick him up from the airport, it was a small group, and um, if I remember correctly, it was like all of my family was there, or met, no, we took them to their hotel first. On the way to the hotel, I had a, a little bit of surprise. They didn't know exactly what the, what the itinerary was going to be for their trip, and I had it all planned out. The first thing we were going to do was go to a wedding. <laughs> surprise, get dressed really quickly. I know you've been on a 30-something-hour flight over here. You wash your face because we don't have much time. We're a little bit late, actually, right now. Get in, get changed, get back. you got 10 minutes. Get back in this van. I drop, get, there, get their bags in the hotel room. Get back here. We are going to a Kurdish wedding. And they, I guess, pretended to be really happy about that because they came back down. Um, they had, I mean, I was the only one that spoke the language, so, so they pretty much needed me. Um, I went and grabbed my family, and we all went to a wedding. Uh, wow. And it was a nighttime wedding. So imagine, I mean, these people have not slept. And, uh, and so I've got these Americans, and, and we go to this wedding. And the hosts were just so gracious. Like, they were honored to have these foreigners at their wedding. It was kind of like an honor to them to have almost like emissaries or dignitaries from America, and they're here at their wedding. These people never knew that. But I remember uh, they were such good sports. I, I, I love this group. Uh, because they, you have no clue. Weddings last forever in Turkey. And it would drug into the night with much dancing. And not just dancing like what we think of. It's where you dance in a circle and hold pinkies with other people you don't know. And you do this number, and there's a couple of dances that we do together, and we know all the dances, and you go in a circle. You're kind of working, and you're, we're in this hotel ballroom, and these poor Americans... <laughs> sleep-deprived, nearly dead, are doing this. And I'm like, you guys are awesome. So we danced for a long, long time, and then finally took them back to their hotel room, and they passed out. So that was, 
That was fun. But that is a cultural snippet of what takes place at a wedding. A joyous occasion. Well, this event took place not far from where the wedding I took these Americans to. And some of those cultural norms which happened a few years ago in Turkey, we find right here. And what do I mean by that? Well, weddings in their day were different than weddings in ours, okay? Quite frankly, they lasted sometimes a week. So the setup was this. Um, a young Jewish couple in ancient Middle Eastern culture, they would be betrothed a year prior to the actual wedding day or wedding night. It usually took place in Jewish custom at night, the actual wedding ceremony itself. But a year prior the bridegroom was betrothed to the bride. And so to break that off was pretty much like a divorce, even though they hadn't had the ceremony, they weren't living together at the time, but a year. And what was the year for? Well, it was preparation because the man would go build the house. He would have to build the house and prove that he could provide for this bride and provide for a family. And so then the day would finally come, the evening would come, and the festivities would begin. And they would not end for a week. Think about that. So they had their marriage. Then there was a party. And the next morning, the bride and the, groom, the husband and the, and the wife, they would have to re-welcome people back into their home. And this went on for a week. So there's your honeymoon. Who wants that one? <laughs> not I. And they were expected. The families were expected to provide libation in the form of wine. And so it wasn't just a cultural faux pas that the wine ran out here. There was actual Jewish law that said if you did not provide wine, you could be sued in that culture for not living up to the expectations of tradition. So it was a serious, serious problem that faced this wedding party and who knows why Mary was super involved there? I will just tell you that um, I, I have an opinion based on cultural experience. And I found this, by the way, in the study of Martha and Mary. You'll remember Martha was hosting uh, a dinner event in the house of Simon uh, later on when, when Mary, her younger sister, washed Jesus' feet. And it was, she was very involved. She was always a hostess. Mar uh, Mary here, the mother of Jesus, was also apparently involved if she's giving instruction to the servants. Does that make sense? So culturally, Jenny remembers this well. Uh, if you hosted a big party, there were a lot of expectations that took place. You'd actually get a friend, right, to help you host a party because you were expected to do a lot of things in a certain amount of order, and you couldn't possibly do it, and the men weren't supposed to do anything because we're useless. And, but the woman would get a friend or a family member to help uh, coordinate all the events and then there was this other person we know of as um, the the master of the ceremonies um, and that's who that is but Mary was involved in some way this could have been a family relative that got married we really don't know we don't m know much about who was getting married that's not important here but Cana of Galilee where is that well it's really close to Nazareth Nazareth uh, the hometown where Jesus grew up. Uh, it's not far. It's within a day's walk. Um, but it was a very small town. So archaeologists and historians, we know where this place was. 
it was not big. So think, think in terms of, uh, of, uh, of, of Henley Field. <laughs> yeah, but, uh, they, they know who I'm talking about here. But, so I have a, a, a co-worker. Uh, she is, you would probably say Halls, Tennessee. Do you know where Halls, Tennessee is? Not far from Jackson, Tennessee, up that way. But she, she, so when she's talking to people that don't, don't know her very well, she says, yeah, I'm from the Halls area. But if you get down to it, she'll say, well, really, I'm from Nankipoo. <laughs> Cana is Nankipoo. It was tiny, an agrarian little village. Archaeologists think maybe, maybe like a dozen families that kind of lived near one another to kind of pool their resources. But when they wanted to go to the big city, they had to go to Nazareth. And Nazareth wasn't that big. 500 people maybe. So we're talking about a really small, really intimate place. Everybody knew everybody, and we're out of wine. Uh-oh. What do we do? So that's the cultural setting that we're in. The literary setting, you need to notice this because we're going to reference this in just a minute. Follow the progression of John here. If you just look at the book of John, um, frame it in this way. John 1, where does he start? He starts with what's called this prologue, and it's incredible. The Word became flesh. You know, in the beginning was the Word. The Word was with God. The Word was God. So you've got a whole chapter of introduction that is grand in its, in its narrative and, and use of language to say, guess what? Uh, this Jesus I'm about to tell stories about was, is God in the flesh. And then you have this section where our text is where you are looking at the works of the Messiah, the works of Christ. And he frames this section with signs and the signs and the 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 significance, the significance. You see the connection there with the word significance? I'm going to be talking about significant things. The signs, he says in verse uh, 11, this was the first of his signs. That's important. That's the key to understanding this text. John talks about signs that Jesus did, signs that are in and of themselves miracles, but they're significant because they point to something greater than just the event, right? You get that? That's what a sign is. And John frames an argument. He starts with a prologue saying Jesus is God. Then he says, tells stories about how do you know he's God? Well, there's seven or eight, depending on which commentator you follow, seven or eight signs that he says this is the first one, but then there's a second one, and a third one, a fourth one, a fifth one, a sixth one, and finally, the biggest sign of all, which is the death, burial, and resurrection of this man in, at Golgotha, right? That's, and what's the point? Well, uh, then he says, well, the point of me writing this, you remember in chapter 20 of this Gospel of John, you know, like, what's, what's, the, what's the purpose, John? Okay, well, he just lays it out there. The purpose of this book in chapter 20, verse 30, now Jesus did many other signs in the presence of the disciples, which are not written in this book, but these are written, these are written so that you may, here's the point, believe that Jesus is the Christ, the Son of God, and that by believing, you may have life 
in his name. So, so there's the point. The point of turning water into wine. And, and how, how insignificant a wedding. We don't even know the name of the wedding party. We didn't get that invitation. Like, how, how subtle. I love subtlety in literature. Shane, I'm sure you appreciate this as an author. Subtlety is so, such a wise way to write. I love writing or I love reading narratives that, sh- that, that use subtlety. I think Tolkien was pretty good at subtlety sometimes. I mean, a wedding in this little known nanky poo of a village. We don't know who got married. We don't know who the master of the ceremony was. We don't know the name of the servants. You barely know that there were only five disciples, and that's by deduction alone. And that's the sons of thunder. John was there. His brother was there. Uh, Andrew was there. Peter was there. And Nathaniel was there. That's the, we got five of Jesus' newly minted disciples. It just took place in the, the earlier verse, verses. And he's there. Interesting enough, these single dudes are standing out by the servants. That's where you typically find them at a wedding, right? Just, just go hang out by the servants. You know? So... So, and you've got these jugs of purification. I'm going to talk about them too, but, but think about the setting of this in, in, the, in that text. So, so you've got the introduction, Jesus is God. You've got the signs that take place. You've got the private ministry of Christ in the upper room. You've got the Passion Week narratives. Uh, and, and, then, and, then, and then that's the end of John's book. So why do we find this wedding? So let's, let's look at it in depth here. On the third day, I think that's important. The third day. I'm going to go back to that. Just, just remember the third day. There was a wedding in the Cana of Galilee. Uh, Jesus was invited with the wedding with his disciples. And when the wine ran out, the mother of Jesus said to them, we have no wine. And Jesus says to her, woman, what does this have to do with me? Now, I'll be honest with you. That sounds a little rude. Shake your head like this. If you, if you read that in English and thought, that seems... I mean, almost to the level of disrespect. It's not. Unfortunately, that's because you're English. When you see woman, comma, what does this have to do with me? You think of a rebellious young man saying, smart talking his mama. That is not what the Greek or the Aramaic originally, the Greek uh, in John's book, that's not what. Basically, it says in Greek, woman, which was not a derogatory term whatsoever. It's more like ma'am. Um, uh, the, the words there in, in Koine would be something like, uh, what between me and you does this do? Or what is this between me and thee? That's, that's what he says. Why does Jesus say that? Well, you'll remember at the cross, one of the last things Jesus says is he looks from the cross, he's dying, and looks to his mama and again says, woman, and gives her to who? John, who writes this book. Basically says, I leave you with him, take care of her. Uses the same word, woman. 
It's not disrespectful. But there is somewhat of something there that to his mother she needs to know. Because we find the words, my hour has not yet come. And if you read the book of John, this hour reoccurs over and over. Or the day of the Lord, or my hour has not yet come. What is he talking about? Well, he's talking about his death, burial, resurrection. The hour of his, his basically, uh, where he's on the cross. His hour has not yet come. Woman, what does this have to do with me? We are given glimpses of Jesus' life. In the Gospels, the opening scenes are his birth. Then you have this one narrative that talks about when Jesus was 12 years old. Do you remember what happens? He's left. They go to Jerusalem, and Jesus kind of doesn't follow the party back to Galilee, back to Nazareth. He's left there, and they're frantic. The parents, Mary and Joseph, are worried, sick, trying to find their 12-year-old son who... I guess they assumed was with his cousins or friends or something, but they searched and then he wasn't there. And so they've got to travel all the way back to Jerusalem to find 12-year-old Jesus. And what's he doing? He says, well, why is it a shock to you? I would be about my father's business. And in an odd way, he talks as a 12-year-old wise son. He talks to his mother and his father and says, I'm going to eventually be about my heavenly father's business. And what's between my heavenly father and me has nothing to do with you. I will not take orders from you at some point in my life. I will do what my father says. Now do you see? He looks to his mother and says, this event. You, you ran out of wine. I know you've come to me over the course of our lives to help you with things. And who wouldn't go to Jesus if he was your son? Quite frankly, if Jesus was your son and you had a problem, you probably need to go to Jesus to help get solution for that problem, correct? So Mary's doing what Mary always has done, go to Jesus. Joseph, by the way, is probably not on the scene. He's probably passed away. Now that's an assumption. We don't have that. But at the cross, he doesn't give Mary back to Joseph, right? He gives it to John. There, by the time Jesus is 30 years old, Joseph is, is probably deceased. So oldest son and Mary, can you, can you picture this? You got a problem, you're probably going to go to Jesus, and she does. I'll touch on a controversy, but I'm going to have to save the controversy for the after service when we open up cans of worms. There's two major controversies of this text, and honestly, they're just distractions. There's the Catholic controversy of Mariology, which we should go to Mary for things because Jesus doesn't deny Mary anything. And so if you really want to pray and get something done, go to Mary. She's like the real ticket into getting God to do what you want to do. That's a fallacy that comes from this text right here. And it's absolutely ridiculous. The text itself argues against it. And we can open up that can of worms later. I'm just going to mention it and throw it out there to you, and we can talk about it later. And the second has to do with wine and how that causes so much controversy in our context. It did not cause controversy in their context. So I'm just going to show you my cards, and we can argue about it later if you want to. It's so pointless to argue about this now. It was wine. Wine is wine. Okay? Wine is for weddings. Wine is to make the heart glad. The Jews 
knew what wine was, and wine was wine. Fermented grape juice. It had alcohol in it. End of sentence. We can talk about it later. Do whatever he tells you. That is the greatest sermon ever preached in the New Testament. Thank you, Mary. You want a sermon to live by. Follow that one. Mary says, do whatever he tells you. That's what the Father said of Jesus, too. There were six stone water jars. What are those about? These stone jars were huge. They would be set up, and they would be for the Jewish purification rites. So they washed everything, their feet, their hands, their pots and pans, every instrument in their house. And just think about a wedding. If you do washing, ceremonial washing on a daily basis, you're going to do it a lot for a wedding. You have lots of visitors coming to your house. You need these purification jars, but Jews and the Pharisees did as the Jews and the Pharisees would do, and they would take the law of the Old Testament and put it on steroids, basically. So they would go nuts with these laws. And these purification jars are example of that. The laws were specific. Yes, you need to wash. You need to do this, that, and the other. But they would just go overboard. So there were these stone pots and holding 20 or 30 gallons each. How many gallons of water we got there? And they're not full. So Jesus basically tells his mother, I'm going, I'm going to do something about this, but it's not at your request. It's at the Father's request because I'm about to display my glory for the first time. And it'll be a sign, and the servants, and my disciples, and you. And then everyone who reads the one particular disciple that's there, who writes a book, is going to know about it. Isn't that cool? The subtlety. Think about how this story got to you. So he tells the servants to fill them to the brim. These purification jars, these, these law on steroids, fill them up to the very top. There's going to be no question what is about to take place. Because when it takes place, it is a miracle, and there's going to be no question as to who performs this. It's going to be God. I'm not going to do some hocus-pocus magic trick. God's going to do something here. He said to the servants, fill the jars with water, and they filled them up to the brim. And he said to them, now draw out some and take it to the master of the feast. And so they did that. The master of the feast tasted the water become wine. By the way, the master of the feast, there's no indication that he is aware of a miracle at all. He's just like, someone went to Kroger and got the good stuff. Is basically what's going on. And he says, uh, he tasted it and became, the, the, the water is wine and he didn't know where it came from, though the servants who drawn the water knew. The master feast called the bridegroom and said, everyone serves the good wine first, but the people who drunk freely, then the poor wine. Now, if you think this is grape juice, that has no meaning whatsoever. But if you understand what wine is and wine is wine, then you know what this means. And so I'm glad you talked about uh, not being addicted to wine, which is a qualification for elder. That was a great segue. We could talk about this, but this is wine. But you've kept the good wine for now. And this was the first of his signs Jesus did in Cana of Galilee and manifested his glories to his disciples. 
In the time we have left, now that we understand what has taken place here, what's the point? As we said before, it's so that you might believe. But if this is a sign, and it is, and John says it is, what are the implications? I would just like to submit there, there are at least, at least five, okay? At least five. We've talked about the wedding scene, the literary setting, the cultural setting. We talked about a couple of controversies we can talk about later if you'd like. What does this, what does this mean to us? Well, we read in our uh, responsive reading, Jeremiah 33, 10 through 16, this was predicted, that the Messiah would come. And it is fitting that the first of his signs would be a wedding. What we find in the miracles of Jesus is proof text of God in the flesh. At least of a new prophet. Now, how do we know that? You don't have to turn to it, but when Moses was here, Moses performed signs. And why did Moses perform signs for Pharaoh? Do you remember why? It's because when he was at the burning bush and God comes to him and says, I'm going to give you a message to go tell Pharaoh to let my people go to redeem them out of Egypt, to rescue them out of bondage. Moses said, well, how are they going to believe me? They're not going to believe me. I, I, I'm a nervous man. I, I, you know, I don't, I, don't, I don't do too well in those situations. God, I, what are we going to do? Calm down. Take your staff. Throw it on the ground. What happened to his staff? It became a, a snake. That's right. Now he said, pick that snake up by the tail. Don't ever do that. Pick the snake up by the tail, and it became a staff again. And then he, and he said, that would be a sign, right? And he said, well, that's not good enough, God. I'm, th- I, that was really neat, and that was a good trick, but that's not good enough. So he said, okay, stick your hand in your cloak and pull it out. And he pulls it out, and what happens to his hand? Leprous, completely covered in leprosy. Terminal disease in those days. Leprosy. Now put it back in and pull it out. Pure. No leprosy. And that will be a sign. And so God gives Moses these signs to give to Pharaoh. We know them as the plagues, correct? He goes with Aaron, because he still needs a friend, goes and he, Pharaoh let my people go, hardens Pharaoh's heart, but the signs of all the water being turned to blood and all of that to demonstrate that God is doing this for his people and for Pharaoh. And the end of Deuteronomy, it says, Moses died, okay? Moses died, no one knew where his grave was, and to this day, the writer says, to this day, Deuteronomy, last, last very last bit of it, you can read it on your own, to this day, there has not been a prophet who saw God face to face, who had the signs given to him. And so we look for a prophet that's going to be able to do these signs because the significance of the miracle is that God is interrupting his natural laws of the universe 
to show men and men and women that he's on the scene. And so they waited and they waited and they waited. You saw glimpses of this throughout the Old Testament where miracles were performed. And so Jesus does these signs, the first one being a wedding, but what does he do after that? Well, he feeds 5,000 with just, a, with just a, a, boy's little, a little boy's lunch. And then he heals people, several of those. And I've always wondered, some of these uh, evangelists who like to get on TV and do uh, healing ceremonies, you know about this, why don't they duplicate this miracle? Well, just, they, just, they just do the, the healing ones, but it's like, and then they go, well, well Jesus did this, so I'm going to do this. Well, why don't they do the, the water into wine one? It's just as valid of a miracle, correct? Or why don't they stand up and, and feed the hungry? That's just as valid of a miracle. Well, the answer is, it's harder to fake those. It is. It's, just the, it's easier to fake a, a healing. And that's why you have false teachers on television, and they do these healing events. Um, because you can fake those, quite frankly. Water into wine cannot be faked. We've got a new prophet on the scene, but it goes beyond just the law and the new prophet. It goes to God being on the scene. Why did I say the third day is important? Because if you think about the narrative of John, it starts with this God in the flesh. It starts with in the beginning. Now, oddly enough, how does the Bible start? In the beginning. The same words. In the beginning was... The word was with God. And in Genesis, we find in the beginning, God created the heavens and the earth. And in the first three verses of Genesis, we find the Father, the Spirit, and the Son. How do I know that? The earth was formless and void, and darkness was over the face of the deep, and the Spirit of God hovering over the face of the waters. And God said, the word, the Logos, comes out. God said, let there be light. That's Christ, the word of God. Well, that repeats itself, and so there are commentators, and I agree with them, that John does similar things. He mimics Genesis' account because he's telling you that Jesus is God in the flesh. And so you start here in John, and you have a very similar testimony to what took place in Genesis chapter 1. And then you flow from John's Commentary there into a wedding. Well, what takes place in Genesis chapter 2? A wedding. And then after that, you have sin entering the scene in the Garden of Eden with the temptation and the serpent. Well, what do you have after the wedding in Cana? You have Jesus cleansing the temple and driving out the sinners. Just as sin got driven out of Eden. It's intentional. It's beautiful. It's literary mastery. But it's not just a trick of an author. It's God's word. Many miracles contained within God's word, but the greatest miracle is God's word. And we find the bookend not only in Genesis, but what takes place in Revelation, incidentally written by John. How does it end? It ends with the defeat of the dragon. It ends with a wedding, the marriage supper of the Lamb, and then it ends with a new creation. 
You have Jesus speaking. You have God working. You have Jesus turning water into wine. On the third day, you have God speaking the waters separated from the waters. All of that is beautiful and intentional. The implications of the sign of Jesus turning water into wine is that God is recreating. God is on the scene. And what sin has damaged, the original creation, Jesus is able to make new. This is the recreator. He doesn't need you. He, he could take care of the little problems like a social faux pas of running out of wine, but he doesn't go to Kroger to get it. He's God. Fill your, life, your, your purification pots to the brim and they'll never be enough. But when I'm on the scene, I'll turn them into overflowing wine. So much so that it's, it's excessive. The recreator is on the scene. The implications and the significance of wine is not lost in the New Testament. Because what do you find at the Last Supper? You have Jesus with the wine. And what does the wine symbolize? The blood of Christ. I'm not making this up. I mean, if you just flip a few pages over in, in John chapter 6, after he feeds the 5,000, he talks about signs again. He talks about blood, and this is really weird to the Pharisees in chapter 6 of John's narrative. Verse 35, Jesus said to them, that's the Pharisees who are like really confused. He says, I'm the bread of life. Whoever comes to me shall not hunger. Whoever believes in me shall never thirst. But I said to you that you've seen me and yet you do not believe. All the Father gives me will come to me and whoever comes to me I will never cast out. For I came down from heaven not to do my own will, but to do the will of him who sent me. And this is the will of him who sent me, that I should lose nothing of all that he has given me up until the last day keep on going he talks about i am the bread that came down from heaven and they said these are the pharisees the jews grumbled is this not jesus the son of joseph whose father and mother we know how did he say i've come down from heaven and jesus says don't grumble among yourselves he says in 47 truly i say to you whoever believes in me has eternal life i am the bread of life later on i am the bread that I will give life for the world. It is my flesh. The Jews then disputed among themselves in verse 52 of chapter 6, how can this man give up his flesh to eat? So Jesus said to him, truly I say to you, unless you eat the flesh of the Son of Man and drink his blood, you have no life in you. Whoever feeds on my flesh and drinks my blood has eternal life, and I will raise him up on the last day. For my flesh is true food, and my blood is true drink. Whoever feeds on my flesh and drinks my blood abides in me, and I in him. And the living Father sent me, and I live because of the Father. So whoever feeds on me he also will live because of me. And this is the bread that came down from heaven. The significance, the significance of wine in John's gospel, it points to something greater, the blood of Christ. Dine on it. You are washed by it. You are cleansed from your sin. Nothing 
but the blood of Jesus. What can wash away your sin? Nothing but the blood of Jesus. That is used here. That's the significance. Now finally, what's the significance? It's a wedding. It's a wedding. It's a wedding. Jesus' disciples were accused by the Pharisees again because John's disciples, they didn't really partake in wine. John, you remember, uh, took the vow of the Nazarite, no, no wine. By the way, if it was grape juice, what does that have to do with it? Anyway, it wasn't. It was wine. So the vow of abstinence from wine, wearing the weird clothes, eating the special diet. You remember all these things? And, Jesus, and John, the, the, uh, uh, the baptizer, his disciples kind of followed suit, but they're like, okay, so he, he was accused. So, so John's, John's disciples, they don't really partake in this, but you seem to eat and drink and be merry, and you go to the houses of uh, tax collectors. We don't even like those people. They're, they're like halfway Jews. And, and you, you like do those kind of things. Why? And Jesus' response, you remember? He said, the bridegroom's here. They should celebrate. Guess what, church? The bridegroom has, a, 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 has, has broken on the scene. This is the first of his signs because he's your bridegroom. You are his. Celebrate. You see, and this is difficult sometimes for us macho men to understand. It's not difficult for the ladies, but it's sometimes difficult for us. We are the bride of Christ. He has spilled his blood for us. He prepares a house for us just like this man did for a year. He's got a, he's got a place for us. He has purchased us with his blood. There is a sense in which the already not yet takes place. You are his. You are betrothed to Christ, church. He loves you more than I could ever love that woman. He loves you. He pursues you. The reason the first of his signs is turning water into wine at a feast, a wedding feast in Cana, is to say the bridegroom is here. Rejoice, church. Rejoice. We look forward to the day when this wedding feast, the consummation of our union with Christ takes place. The wedding feast at New Jerusalem that we see the glimpse of in Revelation. Where a wedding will play out again. Over and over again. We are loved. By the, he gave his life for you. He loves you and he pursues you, church. That's the significance. That's the significance of the wedding feast. Preserved for you today. Let us pray. Father in heaven, we thank you so much for your word that edifies us, God, and it, it, it um, speaks truth into our hearts that we desperately need. Father, we're so grateful for the recording of this story 
and what it reminds us of who you are. The magnificence of your glory causes us to worship. To take joy. To take joy in your love for us. Even when we seem so unlovable. Father, I pray, Lord, that the rest of our service would be an honor to you. We ask this in the name of Jesus. Amen.